You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa, here with my steady and brilliant co-host, Yvette. And tonight, we have a friend of NSLT with us too, Claudia Rast, who deals with cybersecurity issues in her practice at Butzalong in Michigan. And importantly, though, she's co-chair of the ABA Cybersecurity Legal Task Force. Claudia, thanks for hanging out with us. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, all right, Yvette and Claudia, can I interest you in a patch? I am definitely not referring to the kind that you might have added to your genes when you were in your uh, boho phase. That's right, lawyers. Um, It is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And with that theme, we are going to be talking about the kinds of software patches that your younger listeners are definitely going to be more familiar with than putting patches on your genes, Elisa. Thanks for dating us. Um, We've got a lot of topics to cover. There's a ton going on in the news this week, so let's just really get started. Let's start with actual cybersecurity. Can we talk about the effect that telework has on the need for better cyber hygiene for lawyers? Yeah, that's a really big topic, Yvette. (laughs) Thank you for opening that Pandora's box, teleworking, and talk about a scramble among the IT departments uh, for folks trying to get and to secure all those teleworkers uh, in their home environments. And how do you keep the you know, children, much less the barking dogs, from invading your, your PC environment? It's quite an ordeal. Well, one of the things that has happened, of course, Claudia and Yvette, is we've seen a joint guide that has now been issued by DHS and specifically the Cyber Security Information Sharing. Did I get that right? I love Dan Sutherland. I'm sorry, Dan, if I got it wrong. But importantly, they issued that jointly with an intelligence agency, which I haven't seen yet, and that is the National Security Agency, and that deals with VPNs, right? Issued last Tuesday, the 28th, that came out, and that's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure (laughs) Security Agency. I know exactly. I've actually had the opportunity to go there one time, and I will tell you, all nice, super talented people there, so I'm embarrassed I never, and I never get it right. But I think that's interesting. I'll just, um, we're going to hyperlink it. There's so much to say about this that really it could take over the entire podcast, and we want it to take over a podcast soon. But let me just uh, note for our listeners that uh, the director, NSA cybersecurity director, tweeted something. He said, basically, VPNs are entry points to protected networks. So obviously, if you don't already know, a virtual private network is basically the tunnel, the way that you get into your corporate or enterprise or agency network. But it's also just like every other thing that you sort of transit along cyberspace It is another point of vulnerability, another possible attack vector. And in this case, apparently VPN usage has increased over 100-fold during the pandemic. So, Claudia, do you see that as a good thing or a bad thing? Well, which part of it? Um, I would I would say that it's a good thing that the VPNs are are increasing. Uh, the problem, and I run across this a lot, is the inability to properly configure those VPNs by a lot of IT folks. And as you know, IT departments are not uniformly sophisticated in their abilities and skill sets, and those VPN configurations can present and do pose just as much vulnerability as not having a VPN at all. So good idea in 
theory, bad in the execution. Where have we seen this in law and policy before? <laughs> so to that point, Archie Argawal, who's the CEO at Threat Modeler, noted that a quick search on the Shodan search engine reveals that over a million VPNs on the internet in the US alone, which to your point, provide doorways to private sensitive internal networks that are not as protected as people may think. Okay, well, let's let's move a little bit forward. None of these things are an abstraction. They're reality. We know that one of the issues that we've had over and over again from international criminal organizations, as you know, has been malware uh, known as ransomware, which has taken over, hijacked, and um, held for ransom, literally often Bitcoin virtual currency is how that's paid, but uh, entire systems. So there was a system that was attacked with malware, and that was a hospital. And apparently there was an infant that died because of the inability of the hospital, I believe, to access important records. Now, I bring this to your attention because obviously for anybody in private practice, there are going to be lawsuits. So, you know, if you get notice that there are patches or things that you could do or you ignore things like these guides or you have poor configuration, it's just going to be interesting to see how going forward, how accountable corporations are going to be for uh, potential consequences, like in this case. Death. Yeah, you, you raise an important point, Alyssa. And, and one of the problems, and as you probably know, in the hospital environment is there's so many legacy systems that sometimes patches are not available for them and they provide tremendous points of vulnerability. It was tragic in the instance of this hospital in Alabama where the infant uh, had its umbilical cord around its neck in utero and was, was in distress. Um, and that could not, was not picked up by the digital fetal monitor that would have ultimately have notified um, the doc that was that was there for the birth. Um, and the other interesting point in that was that because of the ransomware attack and the inability to access all the monitoring equipment, there were younger medical staff that didn't know how to do things manually. It was just tragic. Wow. Um, well, can we talk a little bit about, you know, since this is a legal podcast and, and you are in private practice, what does the liability look like in that situation? Who is at fault? Like, could you sue the hospital successfully? Could you, you know, sue the uh, doctors who you would may, might argue are not like sufficiently trained? Where does the fault lie? Well, in the typical private medical malpractice scenario, you sue everybody that you can. That's kind okay. of the M.O., so the hospital, the doctor, the, the attending people that should have been monitoring, they are all potentially going to be liable in that instance. Wow. We are obviously listening to Claudia right now that she uh, works in this space, in this ecosystem. One of the things that's interesting is she is the co-chair of the ABA Cybersecurity Task Force. Uh, we hadn't mentioned that earlier, because, but we wanted to because I believe it was founded by Harvey Rishikoff and Suzanne Spalding who are members of the standing committee. Um, and as, as long as we're listening to you sound authoritative, can you give us a quick snapshot, Claudia, on some of the work that that particular group is doing? Well, I'm, as a, the lawyer in me would want to recite the last nine years um, of our efforts and progress in that committee and the task force, but I will be short. Um, we were formed in 2012. Harvey and Suzanne were obviously instrumental. Our first co-chairs were Harvey and Judy Miller, um, and we've had a succession of some co-chairs since then, but we really are there to, to not only inform the lawyers that, that comprise the membership of the ABA, but also their clients in dealing with 
uh, incidents of, of cyber and data protection and privacy and maintaining the confidentiality of information and intellectual property. I should also point out in the nine years that we have been around, we have been able to pass eight resolutions before our, our um, House of, you know, governing house, our governing board and our House of Delegates, all dealing with things cyber, including uh, recently on disinformation and how we need to educate the public about disinformation. And importantly, and I would be banged on the head by my colleagues if I didn't mention this, we just finished a vendor cybersecurity checklist that was published and is available on our website at ambar.org slash cyber. You can see it there. It's free for ABA members. Um, and also we're in the process of completing and soon to be published our third handbook on things cyber, cybersecurity legal handbook, the third edition coming out next February. So exciting things. And they're all things that you'll probably be able to find in a hyperlink that we'll put in the notes to the cast. So, but speaking of lax cybersecurity, there has been another data dump akin to the Panama Papers, but this one is called the Pandora Papers. So um, we're going to build, by the way, until sort of the crescendo on misinformation and get back to your point, Claudia. But this is the latest from the, let's see, what is it called? The International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And I have to say, you know, shout out to America. It looks pretty good. We're not heavily featured here. But what it did show was all of the wealth of all of these so-called populist leaders across the globe who have concealed wealth and are running on a sort of every man uh, platform and maintaining office in places like the Czech Republic, which, by the way, that guy, the prime minister there has had immediate uh, fallout. And of course, once again, we see Vladimir Putin, his folks around him. Uh, and everybody else heavily featured. But sadly, we did see an interesting twist here, which was South Dakota as a money laundering hub. Anyway, we'll hyperlink the ICJJ investigation Pandora papers. But what did you notice, Yvette? All those things were, <laughs> were pretty uh, jaw-dropping for me. Uh, I, I recall that we had a similar data dump a while back with the Panama Papers, and it, it there was a whole series of discussions around um, the tax code, whether or not we needed to tighten our bank secrecy laws or our banking laws to make those kinds of, of arrangements offshore less legal <laughs> and also less possible. Um, but it is complicating when there are parts of the U.S., like South Dakota, places where these types of activities are easier. Uh, Claudia, tell us what you think about this data dump. Yeah, South Dakota, of course, being the most prominent. I think I saw that of the 206 U.S.-based trusts in this report, 81 of them were formed in South Dakota. And there was an interesting interview of the governor of South Dakota at the time that the legislation was passed saying that well, you know, we're not resource rich and we don't have, you know, a border on the ocean. So we thought we would do something that was simple and cost effective, like pass legislation that promoted tremendous secrecy and opportunity for trusts to be formed in the state of North South Dakota. And then, then he also said, and the reason that, that not only in changing the legislation to make South Dakota an opportunity for these trusts to be formed, said that you can also trust the rule of law based on the U.S. system, the legal system, because you can, you can form your trust in South Dakota, we'll let you do that, and U.S. laws will protect you. So it's, it's quite the irony that um, our system of, 
of enforcing the rule of law and combined with the South Dakota legislature has created quite an opportunity for those folks that want to keep their trust secret. Well, what legal fix do you recommend? Because we've seen this before. Like I, like I said, when the Panama Papers came out, there was a whole series of discussions around what fixes to the law should come about. What do you think? Oh, well, that's, <laughs> talk about a heavy lift. <laughs> How about world peace while we're at it a bit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, th- I think one of the things that, that, you know, that South Dakota did that other states don't do is um, allow trust to be formed and maintained in perpetuity. Uh, that granted a, a long life for trust that other states don't allow um, and so that's something that uh, that would take South Dakota legislature. You can't say, OK, South Dakota, you can't do that. I mean, that's something that they have a sovereign interest in their, in their own protections. But I think, you know, when, when you highlight these kinds of things and make it something that the public will then say, oh, my heavens, this just isn't right. Perhaps that will go to the legislatures of these states that are allowing that uh, to do that fix. But. I don't see that happening very easily or very soon. And it's fascinating, though, too, to your point about how this is a legislative problem, but it does affect national security writ large, right? Because if somebody spots a you know a foreign actor or or um, somebody who wants to make use of these laws, like spot, spots a um, a weakness, they can go there and it can affect the entire system. Right. And to your point, you can there could be federal legislation with regard to tax havens. You know, that's that's certainly possible. And then what certain states do to try to circumvent that could be unconstitutional in some way or against, you know, a violation of the law. So there's always that. But then that, of course, takes a certain uniformity and and will in our uh, U.S. Congress. Well, I mean, there are there is presently some rules regarding beneficial ownership that are required by Treasury Department. And so I do wonder, uh, as I was listening to this, whether some of those accounts had run afoul of that requirement. And I think it reminds me of the podcast that we did with Tom Burgess from the Financial Times who wrote Kleptopia, which by the way is excellent and you should read it. And it was written long before this particular data dump. But um, I do find it fascinating that we really expect a small agency like FinCEN with fewer than 300 employees and really no meaningful uh, enforcement authority other than like books and records and occasional this and that to take on a problem that is just so uh, globally epidemic. And I just wonder if it isn't time for us to rethink and overhaul the entire system. But speaking of that, I think, are there any events coming up that we should be talking about with respect to science and technology, Yvette? Absolutely. We've got the ABA's Science Technology Committee's 2021 AI and Robotics National Institute virtual conference coming up. And we'll hyperlink to our previous episodes on artificial intelligence. Claudia, will you be attending from the comfort of your home or office? Yes, that would be my home office, which is safe and secure, I should point out. Also, I mean, some of the interesting things that will, and this is the Institute will be next week, and, and one link you can go to ambar.org slash cyber 
You can also look for the AI and Robotics uh, Institute with, with the ABA and find it there. So uh, register. But things on the regulatory developments, there are lots of movement in the area of AI and robotics, drones, air vehicles. My colleagues and I practice in the area of, of autonomous and mobility, uh, autonomous vehicles and so forth. That will be discussed Facial recognition, you may have seen that California just added biometrics to its data breach legislation that will be effective. So that's among the, the personal things. So facial recognition, surveillance, liability, um, big data, all kinds of good stuff all happening next week. Okay, but the big news, let's face it, an eclipse has fallen over all topics cybersecurity. Uh, and that eclipse is a 37-year-old woman from Iowa who has an engineering, a computer engineering degree and an MBA from Harvard and is one of the most matter-of-fact and, in my opinion, credible whistleblowers to ever come forward. And we have talked a lot about this on this podcast, but this week, Facebook whistleblower has come out and it, as being the person who leaked certain documents Regarding Facebook, her, uh, her name is Frances Haugen. I hope I got that right. She's impressive, intelligent. She is not at all partisan politically. Um, she is factual. And uh, really, quite frankly, after that performance today, both, well, on 60 Minutes, but also on the Hill today, um, I would say she has a bright, bright future in whatever politics or other work she may be interested in. But you might remember um, that Facebook, uh, in addition to allowing Cambridge Analytica's election hijinks and millions, if not billions, of COVID's conspiracy theories and, and misinformation, calls to violence that led up to January 6th event, it turns out that Facebook knew that its amplification, its twitchiness, as she called it, I believe, of its algorithm was contributing to, then uh, this was a very focused and everybody could agree on a topic, an epidemic of poor body image, self-harm and anorexia in girls, my gosh. And what we learned today is that it's the way Facebook is designed, but it's also the way it was modified in 2018. Um, it can, however, they can, and she, she explained this quite clearly, can stop the amplification of security threatening problems. And let's talk about what she identified as some of those, because it may not be what you think. She talked about the genocide of the Rohingya in Myanmar, the ongoing slaughter of Tigrayan Ethiopians, which is a, 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 one of the, the tribes and sects in Ethiopia. And she said it is this kind of thing. But importantly, at the end of, of identifying those as consequences of this, she also said, if you think it's bad now, it's going to get so much worse than you can imagine. So, Claudia, did you track this today? This woman was, uh, in, in my opinion, dazzling. Uh, I'm a huge fan of her now. Yeah, I wasn't able to track it, you know, moment by moment. Obviously, I have a day job that um, I <laughs> have to address with client demands. But, yeah, it was fascinating. I did pick up uh, snippets of that. I mean, impressive in the depth of her knowledge. And one thing that struck me as an attorney in private practice that has been involved in some litigation um, and I've observed trial work, when she, and I think this was reported in, in the news article in the last couple of days, 
that she had free access to all these documents that ultimately she made available. This was not anything that she had to hack to get into. These were documents available to her as an employee. And when these same documents were requested of Facebook, they indicated they didn't have them. I mean, so that to me is an incredible credibility issue that uh, is not a surprise necessarily. But I, and I will go back probably 10 or 11 years ago when I was in a, a cybersecurity big event and people were going on about the government and access to our information, big government. And I stood up and I said, I am not afraid of big government. I am afraid of big industry, of big data, of big tech. Uh, they're the ones that can freely grab all of our data and do whatever they want with it. And we have no ability to say no. I, I mean, I think that's right. I think the big, the, the important uh, takeaway that I think was uh, perhaps articulated a bit better in the 60 Minutes episode, um, which we can also um, hyperlink, you can watch it on their website, is that hateful content just as a matter of the way that the algorithm is structured, it gets far more reach, period. Now, the significance of this is, as she explained it, people from the European Union, politicians have said that they have been forced, and they've accused Facebook of putting them in the position where they can't really represent their constituents anymore. They are representing the larger ability to get clicks and attention on Facebook. And so what they de described and what she has explained why it's happening is that you're getting more and more extremism in the country. And that's also this country. It's not just something that's happening. You know, we see this, you know, populism moves and so on. What you're having is people are, Facebook is arguably controlling behavior of certain candidates, persons uh, holding elected office. Now, I noticed Congress didn't respond, or no member seemed to respond as well to that as I was hoping. But the, we have seen a shift. And to the extent that some of this is attributable to the way these platforms operate, I feel like the foundation that we're standing on that makes this not at all terra firma, like exposing it, coming up with suggestions, is the fact that we have a free market system where they have to maximize profits by whatever means that are legal, which this is at this time, to uh, reach shareholders. She did suggest fixes, and I would point out she's not a lawyer. I, I don't. Did you hear her talk about these ones, uh, Claudia? Yeah, I heard her talk about one fix. It basically said, do not allow those under 17 to even be on or have access to these media sites. Um, and it, it, it is frightening, and those algorithms are in terms of the AI that's behind them. Um, and this, what, what I think is called the engagement index, that people are more engaged the longer they are on a certain area. And the, and the thing that attracts them is the kind of hatred and vitriol that for whatever <laughs> problem we have as human beings that seems to, to be attractive to us for whatever reason. Um, but that's the engagement index. And it's just a bad algorithm that should not, you know, I think we need an engagement index that's based on, you know, puppies and, and, you know, chocolate. There are much better things to be engaged about. She did suggest a specific legal fix, though. And what I want to say is that I, Yvette and I have talked about this, but Yvette, what she said was, um, and I want to get your reaction to this, because I know you've given a lot more thought to this than I have. She went right to Section 230 of the Telecommunications Decency Act. 
And what she said was, what you do is you force an exemption for damages deriving from the function of the algorithm. In other words, algorithm is 100% controlled by Facebook. That they should have some liability for consequences. Content, though, is what 230 should cover. But the algorithm and how it's operating is a different thing. Now, I don't know what that would do in terms of real consequences, real damages, but I'd welcome both of your thoughts. I know Yvette's thought about this a lot. Well, it, it is really interesting. There have been a lot of conversations around um, reforming Section 230 of the Communications CCC Act, um, but I think there is unanimity behind the idea that you know Facebook and other social media companies represent a problem on a variety of of social fronts, right? Like you've alluded to a number of those, um, including like how we're affecting our our children, um, all the way up to um, promoting uh, genocide, right? But there isn't a, a unified approach as to how to make those reforms and make reforms that are effective. Um, I think that uh, Senator Klobuchar mentioned today that um, they're thinking about um, an amendment to, or like an, an exception to um, immunity um, under the Communications Decency Act, which, by the way, like says that Facebook and other social media companies aren't aren't publishers and they're not responsible for the content, but and cannot be held liable for it. Um, so there there would be an exception around vaccine misinformation, um, which is interesting, but still doesn't get at some of these broader problems that we're talking about. I'd love to hear Claudia's opinions about why this is a national security issue specifically, just kind of like connect the dots for our audience, please. And like what you think um, might be an appropriate solution. Um, Noting that Francis Hogan does not recommend breaking up Facebook as a way to get at at some of the problems identified because she just said that it's really the algorithmic approach that has actually been copied uh, by other tech companies and it would just be smaller versions of, of Facebook operating. So breaking it up wouldn't actually do any, didn't do any good. Yeah, well, perhaps some context and, and, and background might be interesting because I remember I'm, I'm old enough to remember when <laughs> websites first uh, were out there. And, and first of all, you had the, the kind of uh, just post it and there were platforms and they just received the content. Uh, and then you had platforms that moderated that content. And the distinction was made in the early days that those that were moderated had some liability because they were controlling what was there and, and, um, and the kind of speech that was, was there. And then you had, and now you have algorithms that moderate that platform. And, and part of me would say that there's got to be some liability for those that are creating the algorithms that end up leading to issues that we would clearly define as lawyers as being uh, causing uh, damage of some kind and all kinds of damage and and political um, and national security concerns. And I have colleagues in in the media area that say, well, the First Amendment, and I will say absolutely the First Amendment and free speech and so forth. And we have to protect the right for differences of opinion but not when they are manipulated by an algorithm that is doing things to that free speech that were not really intended or were intended not for truly altruistic purposes. So I, I think there's, there's a dark side to all of this that we have to be careful about, which is why folks are jumping into the ethics 
of, of artificial intelligence and the, the ethics of certain automated systems. Um, and then, you know, as you mentioned, national security and obviously Cambridge Analytica and what happened there and even the, the other things that you mentioned, um, Alyssa, in terms of what Facebook uh, foments in some of these uh, countries where there are some real civil rights um, and, and huge human rights issues that are, that are there. I, it's, it's not clear, there's no simple answer, but we have to continue this debate and we have to continue uh, to realize the harm uh, that these kinds of things and platforms cause. She also said there's no government agency, there's no oversight group no agency can manage this. She also said that she should be asked and people with her level of skills might be asked what would work? What would that look like? What would an oversight agency look like? I liked to hear that because I feel like we're all um, trying to uh, solve this from our ecosystems. And I feel like a person with great technical understanding, as she pointed out, had there been such an agency, she would have quote done a tour herself. She would have volunteered uh, to serve. One of her last statements, though, she said, I worry that it, this, referring to the algorithm, is destabilizing societies, not just America. She was making a reference to across the globe. Um, uh, sadly, the counterpoint was delivered by somebody named Antigone Davis, who really, compared to the way this young woman delivered her testimony today, I'm, I'm afraid Antigone just really didn't compare she kept uh, the old saws all over again that Facebook takes seriously all these things. I think we are way past anybody caring whether anything is taken seriously. It just, it just fell flat. I watched it again after her testimony today. And I think we may have come to the other side of this where we're all beginning to really, at least educated people, I think are really beginning to question. Client, well, I, I definitely want to thank you for that context because you know, harkening back to the days that Facebook didn't exist, low 15, 16 years ago, it seems like Facebook has been around forever, but it really hasn't. Um, but it, it, but it has become so ubiquitous. Uh, there was reference in the testimony today about how Facebook is literally the internet in some of these places. And it is a lot like a utility, right? Where you can't escape it uh, and function. WhatsApp is like the way that people communicate. And so it is really challenging in that context to kind of like, you know, um, keep it at a, at a level of, okay, we're just ex exchanging uh, cat videos to kind of like just really hone in on your point, which you were saying in a, in a super polite way, Claudia, is Francis Hogan's uh, testimony that Facebook allegedly boosts harmful material in order to improve engagement. And it uses kind of made up terms like meaningful social engagement in order to justify it's um, it's like framing around the algorithms, but at the end of the day, this is all about you know profitability, making money, uh, and that engagement is 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 designed around keeping people on the on the platform so that they can look at ads. Yeah, you know, in some context there, Yvette, it was only in 2012 that Facebook went with its IPO, and if you remember, its IPO kind of tanked in the initial uh, days because its mobile app didn't have the ability for advertisement. Who knew? And that's only nine years later, right? 3.5 billion users. 
that kind of went dark yesterday for a while because of server updates, but we're not going there, right? That was a whole other kettle of fish and, and to the connect, you know, to connect between the profitability and like the continued use of Facebook, I, I believe like um, Mark Zuckerberg lost $7 billion of personal wealth. I'm just having gone down for 12 hours, WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook. So it's, it's really difficult to um, separate out these topics without talking about how immensely profitable these companies are. And when you're doing the moral calculus around whether or not it's appropriate to boost engagement over without regard to whether or not the content is harmful, it's inescapable that um, there's a profit motive that's part of that calculus. I think that she also mentioned, Yvette, that their bonuses are linked. Um, And so that was a way of chilling whistleblowers. That's something that she pointed out. Uh, She also mentioned the fact that their technical ability to uh, moderate content was um, actually just false, that they did things like it was language-based. And, you know, when they were talking about Ethiopia, you know, Ethiopia has six different languages, um, and that they were only ever, ever able to do and had understaffed content moderation. I mean, just layers and layers and layers of things that a willing Congress um, could respond to, a unified Congress. What I find very interesting is if you had to find an inflection point, a place where everybody could agree, regardless of political party, it would certainly be around harm to teenage girls. So I think that as an entree was utterly uh, well-timed and brilliant. Never has anything um, probably brought us all together more quickly than the idea of responding to uh, self-harm by um, innocent young men and women. So let's thank Claudia. We're really glad that you were here. Come back, hang out with us again. We do have a couple of things that we want to announce. So um, among them, I know, Yvette, we brought this up before. One of our favorite cool gals is Avril Haynes. <laughs> Friend of the cast, Avril Haynes, who is currently the director of national intelligence, will be speaking on a live webinar with the standing committee on October 13th. Also, to the extent that any of you would like to volunteer to help Afghan refugees, the ABA now has a microsite that will link you with information so you can volunteer to help. You can find more on about that on the notes to the cast tonight and on the ABA website. Please take a look. All right, we'll, we'll have more on that again later. We hope to um, entice somebody in to talk to you a little bit more about the joint guidance that has been released. I would uh, say that I hope every responsible practitioner is thinking about their VPN security, how well everything has been configured. That's about it. We hope to see you guys again next week. We never take your attention for granted. We're glad that you joined us. We want to thank everybody for listening in. The Standing Committee on Law and National Security will keep bringing you national security law every week. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. If you have topics that you want us to cover, feedback you want to give us, reach out to us whenever. You can hit us up on uh, ABA at ABA NATSEC on Twitter. You can send us an email if you prefer after listening to today's testimony not to do anything via social media. It's easy to reach us. You can just reach us at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. And don't forget, all of us here on this podcast are doing so in our individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. We'll see you next week. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 